Welcome to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Charlie Irvin from the University of Vermont. Charlie, how you doing? I'm doing just terrific, Kim. Uh, I'm calling you from the University of Vermont, located in the People's Republic of Vermont. <laughs> you know? Why don't you tell everybody uh, how you got into faculty development? Oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, long ago and far away, um, I was recruited here in 98 to set up a asthma research center. And then um, shortly after that, the NCRR of NIH released a program announcement for an unusual grant called the COBRE grant which is the Center of Biomedical Research Excellence. It's a grant that was that only people from <clears throat> idea states, which is institutional development award states, could apply for. These are states that uh, account for, in aggregate, less than 10% of the NIH funding. And because the NIH budget had doubled, they wanted to send money to other places. And it was an interesting grant because... Um, the idea of it is to increase uh, NIH funding to a state like Vermont. They figured that if they had more well-trained uh, faculty, they would get more grant applications, et cetera. So um, I applied for that, and we got funded in the first run, and then it was and it was refunded twice for a total of 15 years. And during that period of time, I recruited and trained and developed um, a cadre of just phenomenal faculty who've done very, very well. And because of that, um, and because they wanted to, there was, they, there was an opening for an assist, then assistant dean of faculty. We call it the dean of faculty, by the way, not mm -hmm. faculty affairs, which is a little unusual. And it's because the dean's notion uh, was that it was something more than just sort of RPT. There was, you know, faculty development and other things. And they said, well, since I'd done such a uh, crash-bang great job with that, when we thought you might be a good candidate for that. So five years ago, um, I started off in faculty affairs, and, um, and it's been fun. I've enjoyed the heck out of it. It's, uh, it really is a great uh, thing to do. Uh, and um, it's so important for our institutions that we look after the faculty. What's your office look like? Can you describe how many people are there and who does what? <laughs> That's a great question, because back when I took this job and I went to my first GFA and AAMC meetings, everybody would say, oh, you're the new person from Vermont. I said, yeah. Well, how many people do you have in your office? And I said, um, me, one. <laughs> And they'd all look at me like I was mad. Um, the issue here, you know, every institution is different. Um, you know, it's the old saying, once you've seen one medical school, you've seen one medical school. Yeah. Um, our situation is we're probably the most under, in fact, actually, we know that from AAMC data. We're the most under-resourced um, medical school in the country in terms of uh, funding from the state and the university, et cetera. We really are a a ship that floats on its own bottom. Mm -hmm. And the dean at the time really uh, 
wanted to keep the dean's office mean and lean because he wanted to be sure that the chairs had the resources for them to do what they wanted to do. So uh, the way the office was set up was there's a, um, the senior assistant to the dean. We had a group of people in the office that did various tasks, but nobody directly reported to me. So there was one person for the volunteer faculty and one person for the paid faculty. There was no faculty development person. There was an HR person, and then there was another person who, um, who, who did HR not only for faculty but staff. And then there was one person who was managing the RPT project, but none of them uh, processed. None of them actually reported to me. Mm. Today, that's different. Um, the person who's who's um, charged with dealing with RPT now directly reports to me. Mm. That just happened, and I have a half-time person who is uh, helping me uh, do the faculty development stuff. And my percent effort has risen from 0.4 to 0.6. So that's what we look like. Uh, and about how many faculty you have there? Well, we have 760 or thereabouts paid and 1,500 unpaid. But I've got to tell you, Kim, we, we, like many places, we have a, a new network that includes six other regional hospitals. Mm. And last year, we, we just blew through our previous record of hiring people. We hired almost 100 new faculty last year. Wow. So it's growing very rapidly. Tell you know, and I don't know how that compares to other faculties out there, but it's got to be pretty good sized, I should think. Yeah, definitely. Tell us a little bit something about you, uh, what's going on in faculty affairs or the kind of things that to keep you up at night you know you said you hired about 100 people and yep. and I assume you're still doing your own science you're your professor yeah of a little I'm getting near the end of my yeah I'm getting near the end of my career so I'm starting to wind some of that down but um, yeah I'm still funded I'm still active I'm also vice chairman for the Department of Medicine for the research aspects. Oh. And of course, like most schools, the Department of Medicine is huge. It's about 200 faculty currently. Right. Um, so I'm fully employed, as I like to think. Well, there's a bunch of things that are kind of um, really in my forebrain. The first of these is, is uh, you know, I, I, I almost hesitate to even mention LCME, but Mm -hmm. We're about, um, we get, uh, the site visit team comes in the spring of 21, and next year, next academic year will be our data collection year, and, and then the DCI goes in the following fall. Um, I've just begun the process of, uh, of uh, revising and updating our, our rule books. We have two of them, mm -hmm. um, as the way ours are organized, and... Uh, we did a major uplift back in 2010-2011, and so this will be uh, more minor, but there are a lot of things that got to get changed. So that's first in my forebrain. Yeah. The second thing that's in my, my head is, uh, as we discovered this summer at GFA, and I sort of suspected, is that uh, we're starting to see more problems with faculty uh, going off the rails. Uh, part of this is increased reporting. Part of this is stress, both in our society and in our um, our academics. And it doesn't really much matter if it's P 
PhD or an MD. Mm -hmm. um, the stress has gone way up, and, and so we're seeing more issues with that. And then finally, um, I think the thing that bothers me maybe the most, and the one thing that I worked, I'm somewhat worked up about, actually I'm way worked up about it, is the way that our faculty are being marginalized. Um, and by that I mean uh, we have faculty who are engaged in the teaching mission on the teaching uh, education scholar pathway, and they're being asked to do more and more. And we've changed our budget um, model here at the university to be uh, what is called incentive-based budgeting, but what it really means is that each college has to float its own budget, uh, which means that that all trickles down and that everybody has now become, you know, like, what are you doing to cover your salary mm -hmm. uh, kinds of things. And that puts people, I've seen it happen in my previous institution, and it changes how we deal with each other, and that's a huge stress on people. Uh, and so the, whether we're talking about an education scholar, whether we're talking about a tenure track basic scientist, or we're talking about a clinical uh, educator, or as we call them, clinical scholar pathway persons, um, they're just being overwhelmed. Um, they're, uh, and something has to give, and I'm doing a study right now of the data at our school about how women are being promoted and they get promoted to associate professor but then something happens and this is known this has been reported before in the literature uh, and I think part of what's going on is something has to give and uh, people's academic career I think is is one that goes because it's so it's such a long horizon I mean you know, I got to teach today. I got to do a research and get a grant today, and I got to see patients in the clinic today. Whatever it is, whereas you know, getting promoted to full professor—that's something that happens five, six years from now. And I got to—I'm just having trouble coping with today. So, and, and what's going to happen? I see the problem is going to become increasingly difficult to attract and retain. Um, really good academics, and the good academics start off wonderfully, and then they, their their fat, their 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 careers get derailed because of all these external influences. Yeah. And yeah. some of it, there's probably not much we can do about, but I think there's other things that we can do to mitigate it. So um, that's what I'm thinking about. What's the, what are some of those things you know we can be thinking about? Well. Um, I mean, there's things that we can do in faculty affairs. So one of the things I always think about is every time somebody says, well, you have to do this, I say, well, why do we have to do that? Well, why are we doing this? Uh, what can we do to streamline things? I mean, we were doing crazy stuff here, um, and I'm sure every institution is the same way. Just the reappointment process, we had these absolutely nutty forms that the university wanted us to fill in called green sheets. And it was basically a synopsis of what you've done over the last five years, but it's just what you should have in our CV. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, why do we use these green sheets? Well, because they have to know this information. I said, why can't they look at their CVs? And they said, well, their CVs don't have it. I went, what? Mm -hmm. And I started looking at the CVs, and I, and I realized that the CVs, particularly the clinicians, was, were terrible. Um, 
one example, I was on the promotion committee some years back, and there was a really wonderful surgeon who I knew and uh, some of the folks in my group were collaborating with, and he didn't list a single committee. Now, there's no way uh, this guy, particularly as wonderful as he was, wasn't on ten committees in the mm-hmm. hospital. So I, um, I figured out a, uh, a standardized CV for the college, and so now what we do is when you go up for a reappointment, is all you have to do is an annual mm-hmm. review, and we have a nice form we've developed for that, and your CV in this, you know, specified format, and that's it. You know, I, I have a committee member on the promotion committee look at it, and we're all good to go. We, we um, reappoint them. In a few cases, we tell them, hey, you might be ready for promotion, or in some cases we say, you know, it's hard to see that you're living up to your the requirements of this particular faculty rank and position. We, that doesn't happen very often, as you might guess, but I think it's important that um, we cut down things that we ask the faculty to do and really ask the question, do we really need this? Mm-hmm. And is there some easier way to get it? Yeah. And so that's just one example. Another example, there's a uh, the chair of my department decided to appoint a vice chair of faculty affairs, and he's doing a marvelous project um, called Sprint, which a program he picked up from the University of Colorado, and they go in with a team to a clinic and help the clinicians at that clinic cope with, uh, dare I say the word, EPIC or the mm-hmm. electronic health record, mm-hmm. and uh, have really uh, had a huge impact on, uh, you know, working, if physicians working late at night trying to keep up with their epic notes, etc. And so we're hoping to expand that to try to decrease some of the nonsense, not nonsense, but really clerical work that our yeah. clinicians are doing. Yeah, we, you know, that they call that pajama time. Yes. Yeah. Well, back, yeah, back you to see your... That. Yeah, that standardized CV format, of course, that was awesome that you implemented that. I'm curious how you help the faculty members know to update that information. Is that kind of institutionalized with their annual review, for instance? And how do your faculty know not to wait until X number of years to then kind of go back and recreate all those experiences and opportunities? Well, part of the la- what happened last time with LCME is that we instituted an annual review, and at that time, some departments were doing it, many were not. And, and today, because of the fact for reappointment for all but the tenured, tenured faculty, um, they have to go through this process at, at some cycle. It's two, four, six, depending on your rate. And so at those points in time, they have to... They have to uh, make sure that the CVs they give us in the dean's office have to be in this format. And if they're not right, we send them back. Um, and, and what I found, and, you know, I went into it with some trepidation. I thought I'd get a lot of pushback. You know, why do I have to do this? This is such a pain. This is stupid. It was fascinating, Kim. I had maybe two people complain mm. about it out of the hundreds. Yeah. It, it people have real, and I've had an unbelievable number of comments. They they say all say the same thing. Well, it's a bit of a pain to do it, but boy, I really like it now. 
Yeah. Uh, because we spent a lot of time uh, highlighting, uh, you know, what our various faculty do and stressing things that are not just papers in the peer-reviewed literature, but really all the other things that faculty do, committee work. Um, our, our model we chose was we adapted heavily um, University of California at San Francisco, but we, we really changed it a lot, particularly in the teaching section. Yeah. Um, we have it much more formalized, and it's really made a difference in terms of the promotions. I'm, I actually have to brag to you right now. Um, this year we promoted, um, everybody got promoted except one, and all faculty actions were unanimous. And uh, typically we uh, uh, deny promotion to about 10%, and we're much way below that this for the last two years. And I mm-hmm. think, I think having... Uh, this and I do uh, promotion readiness consultations one-on-one with faculty who who want some help with it, and I think those things have really had huge impact on the success rates and turns back the ones that aren't ready and it and it improves. It sort of grease. I like to think of it as greasing the skids. They're doing great stuff, but it just just makes it uh, more obvious what they're doing, and I yeah. think that's really helped. That's awesome. That's really good. And I I like doing it, I have to say. You know, sitting down with a faculty member one-on-one, going through their CV and talking about how can they pitch their dossier um, to the committee and the higher life forms is actually a very, very gratifying part of my job. Yeah, I agree with you. We we also at Hopkins have been made, made it mandatory that all faculty have to have an annual review. And then yeah. when you talk to faculty offline, they'll tell you, oh, sure, I, I have an annual review, but they'll tell you, you know, tongue-in-cheek with an eye roll that the, the first statement or question out of the director or department chair's uh, mouth is, you know, how, how much revenue you are generating and how, much, oh, yeah. how many patients are you seeing, and it comes down to the finances. And then we say, well, this is, you know, we train them through our leadership programs and our mentoring courses that you have to take ownership and take control of the meeting and this is about your career. Yep. But it's hard to tell them that and train them to do that when they're walking in with the division director, the department chair, and then they want to know well, how much productivity and how much revenue they're generating. And, yeah. and there's so little effort sometimes spent around their career and planning for that like long-term career trajectory. And it's so sad. You get somebody who's been at your institution six, ten years who you, they say, well, I want to get promoted. They come see you because somebody sent them. And you go, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. You, you, even if we start today, it's going to be four or five years before right. we get you where you need to be. And and then they start to cry. I've had a couple of them crying. And um, it, it really disturbs me. I mean, my own story is and maybe this is the other reason I went into this business, is that um, when I went up to, for promotion, and I was in Colorado at the time, I got it was denied, and it was because I was clueless. I had no idea what was going on. Mm. And so I really had to scramble. Um, because I was doing such a wonderful job in teaching and clinical work that they actually uh, went to, my, my colleagues went to bat for me, and 
we got me through to associate professor. But then after that, I just went, uh, you know, I got my act together. I found out what was going on. And mm-hmm. I, when I went up for pr- promotion to full professor, it just went flying through. So this is I, I my own feeling. You know, I have very strong feelings. I, I don't want our faculty to experience what I did, and it's so unnecessary. If you start, you know, like year, you know, maybe not the first year because you still have to get your sea legs and find out. But <clears throat> you really need to have somebody who's looking out for you for your career. And oftentimes our division chiefs and, and chairs are just n- not coming at it from that point of view because, once again, they're in the now and into the day and they're not looking at the long, long term, yeah. the, long high, uh, the longer time horizon. Yeah. Well, along those lines, what what do you folks do about mentoring there? Do you have a program or anything informal at the department or at your office level? It uh, We do. Um, I'll be totally honest, it's not as robust as I would like. Uh, when I first took the job, I ran a survey of the faculty. I was using the sea change instruments and mm-hmm. And and everything was in line with national norms except for mentoring. And we, there was a huge desire by all the faculty right across the spectrum. It was really fascinating. They all felt they needed more mentoring. Uh, so I've been focusing on that. We we put together a policy for the college um, that each faculty member, when they're hired, has to have an identified mentor. They're supposed to meet with the mentor at least twice a year. Um, some of these, some departments do it. Some even do more. Others, I'm suspicious they don't do anything. Um, and then I started up uh, a mentoring training program uh, using the University of Wisconsin curriculum. Mm-hmm. We've run that a couple of times. I just did a, a two session quickie thing for one of the departments uh, just to get people thinking about it and and getting them to go. Um, We're going to do another one now in March. Um, Now, the problem with it is, like with all the things that we do in faculty affairs, the people that show up are oftentimes not the people that really need it. Uh, But at least we have it and, uh, uh, you know, get people going in that uh, down that road would i like to do no more yeah i'd like to do a lot more but i don't have the resources to do more than what i've done to date what impact does it have well we know the literature here the literature is very strong and my experience with the with this cobra grant is very clear a faculty member who has a, a strong and and useful relationship with their mentor they do better yeah um so you know, I think the data on that is very clear. But you still sit there and have to explain to some people, uh, particularly some of the older folks, that, well, I didn't have a mentor. Why do we need to do this? Uh, right. And we do. We do. You know, the analogy I use that really resonates with people, and I do this. I started doing this with graduate students. I was teaching a course on survival skills for graduate students. And it's really fun to do, and, you know, it'd be fun to do with junior faculty, uh, which I have a few times. You get up on the blackboard and you run the business model for hiring somebody. You say, okay, I'm going to hire you, and i got to run a business model for five years. And you sit there and you do, okay, I got your salary. 
oh, let's don't forget the fringe, and then I've got a technician, and don't forget their fringe, and then, you know, a startup costs and that. And you quickly get into sort of a million and a half, two, uh, $2 million, and I said, now let's go on the Internet and find out what the most expensive cars in the world are. <laughs> and there's one I like. The, the number two car at the time I started doing this was, uh, the number one was a yellow thing. I didn't really like it. So I took number two because it was a Ferrari. It's red, and it's really cool. And I said, if you bought that Ferrari, would you take care of it? Would you take it and would you clean it? You know, like, take, you know, do, well, you wouldn't take it to the car wash. You do a hand car and you take it to the shop and have the oil change. Yet we hire faculty all the time and we have an investment in them that's at least a million dollars and up. And, and yet we don't do anything for them in terms of making sure they're doing well and moving along well and they, mm -hmm. they're, they're proceeding in their career. I mean, that's just insane. Um, and it, it, and then if we lose them, um, I don't know what your data looks like for um, departures. We lose about 7% of our faculty a year. Um, and it was interesting. I was just running the numbers. And um, a lot of women are leaving the faculty. That's yeah. about, it's more than the men. And, and, and so that's of concern. But, you know, I get a, a faculty member who comes in they're here for two or three years, and then they leave. And the problem is, particularly in the clinicians, is they'll, they'll give you a month's notice or six weeks or whatever, and then it takes you six months to find their replacement. Meanwhile, the attending schedule is you know, right. shot to hell. Or if they're teaching, same thing. And so it's... Um, and the colleagues are double and triple booked. Oh, yeah. It, no. And so everyone we lose, just like the undergraduate, every student, you know, freshmen come in and then they leave, that's just killing you. Where are your women and, leaving when you said they leave? Do you know, are they going to the other academic medical centers or private I, practice? I don't Do you know. know. Yeah. And, I, and I just, like I said, I just ran the numbers recently. I've been keeping track of the numbers leaving just to be sure that we weren't yeah. losing a lot. But I only just recently, because I'm interested in, uh, in women and their promotion, mm -hmm. and I've got an abstract in for the GFA thing for July, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to figure that out. And um, I, was, I had never looked at the gender yeah. part of the equation. And so now I'm really, uh, if, I want to figure out why that is. What are they doing? Yeah, our, our, at Hopkins, we I think we only lose less than 5% of our School of Medicine faculty per year. But our challenge is, it's this crazy thing where we don't know sometimes they're leaving till they've already left. Yeah. And then we try to do exit interviews. So we have options, you know, hey, we heard you're leaving or you've left. There's an online form. You could do something by phone. You can come and meet with me or her or him. And no. maybe, I, I maybe do at most five exit interviews a year, and that's why I'll learn where I'll learn where people are going, you know, to private practice or another institution. Yeah. It's, it's hard for us, well, anyway, what I, finding who's well, leaving and when they're leaving and when they're going, and nobody wants to do an exit interview. Yeah, I was just talking to uh, uh, this person over in the hospital who is sort of the HR for the for the physicians and she was doing uh, faculty exit interviews and stopped doing it and she said we I said why and she said well I'll sit down and talk to you so I don't really know but I suspect it's the same problems you had 
What I did, I think, is actually more useful, although you're going to see the the problem with it in a second, and that is uh, I sat down with the chair of medicine uh, because the largest number of faculty hires, et cetera, is in her department, and we rattled down through for about two years' worth of, you know, why were they leaving. And I was convinced that they were leaving for, re- I was convinced that the majority are leaving for reasons that don't have to do with they don't like the environment. Um, I think I think I'm going to. The, the, some of them are going for better jobs. Our pay schedules here are not as high as other places. Um, I think we our culture changed uh, as we go into this incentive-based budgeting. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, people didn't. You know, when I came here in '98, I was sort of impressed with the fact that people weren't working to the same level that I've seen at my previous institution. And now they clearly are. We know that from RVU studies, et cetera. And they, I think what they say is, well, if i got to work this hard, I might as well go someplace and get paid better. Right. Um, a lot of it has to do with family. Um, you know, there's, they moved here. They don't, you know, they found it wasn't what they were looking for. It's too cold. It's too far away from something. They really need to go back to home because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they need they got elderly parents that have to be looked after or kids or whatever the reason is. Um, a lot of them, most of them are leaving because they're getting better opportunities elsewhere. Right, right. Um, and, and that's okay. I think if they're leaving because um, this wasn't what they were looking for, I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with their getting a better job. That's always actually a good thing. Um, and I'm okay if it's a family-driven you know, decision. What I'm not okay with is they're leaving because they don't feel supported. Yeah. They, 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 they feel the culture uh, in the institution is bad, although everything we know about our culture is actually quite good. It was cited last time at the LCME of how collegial our group is. And based on my previous experiences, the, the faculty here, you know, there's, a, uh, there's always a few that give you a hard time, but most of them are just delightful. And this is, it's been, I really like working here, and my colleagues here are fabulous. And so I don't think that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a particularly wonderful place to have a family. Um, you know, I mean, I'm out in the woods in the middle of nowhere, and I'm 20 minutes from the hospital, and so the traffic isn't very bad. So you can go home and deal with the family and, you know, the kids have got a problem, you can go home and deal with that because mm-hmm. you're not going to be gone half the day driving. So, um, but I, I, ha- I still am bothered with, if you're only losing five and I'm losing seven, I'm going to have to dig into this some more. Yeah. And, and i got to find out why the women are leaving. Right. Um, is there an issue there? Our thing at, at Hopkins is we're still only at the 20th, 25th percentile of salaries. So the number one oh. thing I always hear is salary, salaries. Most all our faculty leave there at least doubling, sometimes tripling oh, yeah. their salaries. And then add on think, top of that is we, we are really, I think the saying, I can't remember who the physician said it at Hopkins, but his Hopkins is historically undervascularized administratively. So we're really under-resourced for um, assistance and we have our physicians, you know, roaming yep. their own patients and transporting them, and 
it's yep. all that kind of assistance and certainly no assistance with uh, or very very little or limited when an office or research assistance and so that's well, the, so, the challenge with us yeah so here's an interesting question i mean you know, uh, one of the reasons you don't have a lot of turnover is because you've got a, you know, it's Johns Hopkins, and I'm a faculty member at Johns Hopkins, and you're at the top of the heap, you know, from a, a cachet sort of point of view. But do you think going into the next 10 years that people care as much about, you know, I'm now on the faculty at Johns Hopkins? Right. And, well, you and know, I'm Charlie... Not sh- I, I, I agree with you, and happened. I think you and I had this conversation at some point over the past couple of years. I totally agree with you that we can no longer rest on our laurels, that you should right. be so fortunate that you're breathing Hopkins air or fill-in-the-blank right. Harvard air. That might have floated a couple generations ago, but this this younger generation, they want to know that um, they're working for an institution whose mission they believe in. Yep. that is involved in the community, that cares about what they're doing, yep. they don't, um, they're not so worried about that cachet or impressed by names. They really want to have meaning and connection and engagement. And I think what you mentioned earlier about the faculty being marginalized, I mean, they feel that and they see all those yep. pressures and feel those pressures, add on top of it, hyper-competitiveness with HI. Uh, NIH funding and all those um, yep. modules we have to create, uh, complete those, you know, things that we, at least at Hopkins, and I'm sure other places, we get threatened with emails. You have to complete the this oh, module, yeah. this, this, you know, all these, uh, these yep. licensing things we have to do. And so yep. you just, it's constant harassment with things that are not related to why they got into academic medicine in the beginning. And so I I do share your concern that going forward, we're going to have to change the way we uh, enact policies and try to make things easier for our faculty because right now it's harder than I think it's ever been. You've been there in Vermont, what, 20 years now, and I'd be curious to see those 100 folks that you hired last year how uh, what their satisfaction scores are or what their interests and needs are compared to your folks who've been around for a couple of decades. Well, and I don't expect that they're the same at all. And, and I, I think they're looking for different things. I think they're expecting different things. Uh, you know, you have the cachet of the name. We have the cachet of, well, you're living in paradise, right? And that's not what, maybe not what they're looking for. Uh, yeah. And you can live in paradise like we do here and really have engagement in the community if you want it, but you still have to be appreciated, and I don't think we're doing a good job with that. Mm-hmm. I don't think any I, – I, I would bet that any institution is struggling with that. Did you guys hire a chief wellness officer, or are you at that stage? We just got and hired someone internally, 50% effort, to be our new chief wellness officer. I think, the, I think I remember hearing something about something in the hospital, but we have not done that at the level of the college, yeah. at the College of Medicine. Um, we, we, I, I got to tell you, Kim, uh, uh, when I came here in 20 years ago, I was shocked at how far behind the times we are and um we're we're like in some kind of time warp and we're just gradually 
each year we're slowly catching up. Um, I would have to spend a lot of time at, say, a place like yours or some, some other comparable institution and figure out how we're doing. One of the reasons I love going to the GFA, and, and I'm lucky up here because we have a, a similar faculty affairs group in the Northeast called the New England Network of Faculty Affairs, and we meet twice a year. So between that and the GFA and the AAMC, I get to, you know, I, I, go, I can go to, you know, somewhere between two and four years, two, two or four times a year. And I really get a sense, uh, that's the reason I go, is sort of I get great ideas of things I want to do here, but I also get a sense of, you know, are we keeping up with, with where the, you know, the, the best practices and faculty fairs are. And I think, I think we're slowly getting there, um, and I think we're starting to do some innovative things. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, um, I, think we're, I think we're getting there. I, we have a long way to go. Well, you've got a new dean that started yes, what, we did. last October. What's what's going on with that? What do you see on the horizon with your new dean? Well, he he's an, he came to us from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chair of medicine. Um, he he's terrific. Uh, his first thing that he's done, and we're right in that process now, is he was sort of surprised we didn't have a professionalism statement in letters of offer. He had done something like that in Wisconsin for his department, and then the dean there asked him to do it for the whole School of Medicine. And so, and I was thrilled because I was actually going to do it anyway. We had two different cases of faculty um, who who really were not professional, and we needed to um, do something about it. And the lawyers had pointed out to me that we really didn't have a tight connection to behavior and professionalism in our offer letters and our appointment letters and so that's what we're in the process of doing it's a it's like five uh, four or five sentences about what our values are and what we're seeking in terms of behavior and interaction interpersonal interactions and so that's that's his first thing that he's he's done interesting and i'm thrilled because it was now one thing I don't have to do, and and he's going to obviously be totally behind. And he believes it, and he lives it, and he expects us to be professional, uh, which is fine by me. Uh, and, you know, meeting start on time. It's all. It's really great. And um, he's he's being very clear what his expectations are. So um, that's good, and it's an opportunity to change things and. Uh, that's it's all been fantastic so far, but it's early days, and we'll see how it works out. Has he implemented, or have you thought about how you'll put together some interventions for the folks who are struggling with professionalism? I mean, is there some way to then identify yeah. and hold people accountable if they're not? Yep, yep. Oh, so uh, we he, he's um, let me see how I can. I got to think about how I'm going to say this. Um, he has made it very clear that he doesn't doesn't care if the person is a rainmaker or not, Good. or some Good. you know person who. I mean, it's like the session we had in St. Louis. You know, we're talking about some of the problematic faculty, and you get these faculty who are just you know they're great scientists, they're fabulous doctor, but they've got these really other problems mm-hmm. that uh, really start to you, know, you start to wonder if they're if, if it's worth it. You know, you're getting to the tipping point, 
And he's made it very clear that uh, just because they have a lot of grants or they're, they're not fabulous, untouchable. Oh, absolutely not. And he, he has no qualms about uh, dealing with unprofessional behavior. Uh, we don't have a, we're lucky here. We have actually not that much of it compared to other places and other institutions I've been at. Um, but as a result, we didn't deal with it very well. And I think that that is going to really change. Yeah, we had the And it's changing. Issue. It's actually, I can give you, I could, but, but I can't for obvious reasons. Yeah. Uh, he's already um, made some very hard decisions about people. Yeah, we, 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 on our student, our medical students, when they graduate, they, they take some survey, and I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, it's called the GQ. It's yes. a general questionnaire yeah. that they take right as they graduate, and it's critical for the LCME. Yep, we're taking it we, very seriously that we had some comments of students and learners not feeling respected and yep so we, we're we're hitting that right on the on the head as well and there's no yeah. no protection so here's people. Yeah, so here's a question that came up and and since i got you on the line i might as well talk about it um a uh, a faculty member and i'm making this up sort of and that is um in the process of their promotion dossier, it was noticed that there were some problematic uh, learner evaluations. Uh, on subsequent, well, this wasn't actually a promotion, no, I think uh, the case I'm going to use is uh, a faculty member who uh, came to me and then uh, came to other people, and we ended up having a big meeting about it. Um, a learner, wasn't a medical student, was a, I think a fellow or a resident, um, said some horrible things about this particular uh, faculty member that were not true mm. in terms of, of their uh, ability as a physician, which I found just beyond belief, and some other things. And so this is in his, was in his record and in his evaluations, and he wanted it removed. And so the question is, uh, as you pointed out with the GQ or with learner evaluations, they can say something about, and this has actually happened to me, and it may or may not have happened to you, they say things about you that are um, not right, hurtful, uh, unprofessional. Uh, what's, what's protecting our faculty? What's, our, what's their recourse? I see. Wow. Yeah, what's their recourse? How, how you know, if we can, um, and, and then particularly in this particular case, I asked the question, well, what do we, you know, they finally decided, yes, we can pull this comment out. Everybody was comfortable with that because there was investigation had been done, and we had actually an amazing number of people in the room for that. But I said, okay, fine. Now, what are we going to do? I said, we're not done. They were about to leave. I said, we're not done. What are we going to do about this learner? This is an unacceptable, mm -hmm. I mean, this is slander, right? Wow. Or what is it? Which one's the one where it's it's in writing? Is it libel? I think it's libel. So whatever it is, this this is uh, not okay. So yeah. what are we going to do about this particular learner? Wow, you should see <laughs> uh -huh. them running to the exits on oh. that one. And you know, and oh, now this geez. poor faculty member doesn't feel supported. Like, okay, this guy just trolled me. Right, and what's the ramifications for that? No, and 
I can't get a straight answer out of anybody, nor can I get, and I was speaking to um, the person in our uh, medical student office who deals with the clerkships, and she says, you know, we were, we've been talking about it for the last two weeks, actually. You know, this is a total can of worms. And I said, we're going to have to find out how other schools deal with this. Mm. You know, if there's a feeling by the faculty that this is not correct, how do we rectify uh, the record, and then what are the, you know, if it there goes need to be beyond, consequences. The, yeah, there has to be consequences. So um, the learner evaluations should be confidential, they, but not not a hundred percent anonymous. But cracking the code and figuring out who's who, that has to be very carefully guarded and only done under very you know clear cut things. It, at least it seems to me, but. You know, as we start thinking through how we, we we actuate this, this is not easy. Well, Charlie, that you know, you're bringing up a whole issue. I think that is unique to our current set status in our country with bullying on social yep. media and this incivility that this yep. this whole culture has been permeating now to yep. our current situation. It opens up a whole new you know can of worms. How do we deal with this? Because you're right, yep. we have to. We can't let that learner go on and terrorize other oh. faculty members. And and I can only tell you how I feel, and I know I'm not alone in this, and that is I now realize that every time I go into the classroom, and I don't, I only teach two hours in the medical school, but I do a lot more teaching on the graduate side, but every time I go in the classroom, I'm taking a risk. Oh, I know. You so know, you, you add that. So you add this on top of all the other stressors that our faculty face, and it's it's a wonder why, as you say, we we really need to um, rethink everything we impose on our faculty, from yep. regulatory compliance things to the new business models to research. Every every venue, education, research, clinical, program yep. building, we have compliance and regulatory things and it's just more and more burden on the faculty member and then there you can't help but wonder why you know they're thinking why bother why go into academic medicine when I'm, well okay i'm going so to now, battle so now i'm going to ask you if we're losing more women from the faculty are they are they more i gotta choose my words carefully here but are they more susceptible for those kinds of feelings. Ah, you know, they're not yeah. being supported. They're not, uh, why should I do this? I mean, there is one study out of Tufts that says that women in, in, in you know, 60% of women say, well, I don't care about academic promotion. I don't see the value in it versus, mm. you know, right. 26% of the men. I mean, that's a huge difference. I, how often do you see that in a, in a survey? So they, their attitude about it is already different. And yeah, so if they're getting trolled by the students or, or... Another reason to say, see, why bother? Why bother? Why bother? I mean, I can give you a really good example from the clinical side. I was at a retreat last year, and the head of our practice was talking about, well, we'll lease them out to this hospital. And I went, whoa, 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 stop. <laughs> I said... I think slavery was abolished in 1864, and you're referring to the faculty as production units here. And, uh, you know, I have to say that the faculty are people, 
and they're the, your, your most important resource. And, well, Charlie, this is just what is said in the industry, and this is how it's referred. I said, I don't care what it's said in the industry. This is not how we need to be thinking about our colleagues. Yeah, good, good for you. So, anyway, I'm on a rip about that. Sorry about that. <laughs> Yeah, and I yeah. told you, you asked me what keeps me up at night. Number one thing is is um, our faculty are being marginalized. And I know our institution is, or at least I'm feeling that way. I'd like to have some real data about it. Right. We know from our physician satisfaction survey, although the physicians will tell you it's the satisfaction survey, physician satisfaction has plummeted here. Yeah. We're not as bad as the other places, but every place has declined. And Absolutely. we're getting to a tipping point, I think. Yeah, you're right. Tate Shanafelt's work is, you know, hit that off. Our our dean yep. was University of Chicago or well, in Chicago when they had that whole joint medicine meetings a couple of years ago, and yep. that's why we're also trying to nip that in the bud as well. But it's so complicated, it and is. it it just it's more you know reason for us in academic affairs and faculty development to be always mindful that our faculty come first and i love your your pushback on why why are we doing this no matter yeah. where we interact why? in our institutions we have to be the advocates for our faculty um, we do and and one of the nice things for me is a i'm an old guy so i can get away with being a little bit feisty b i'm very senior uh i'm a fully tenured professor we have i'm i have true tenure so they can't get rid of me and so i and you know i was having the conversation with two of my colleagues or they happen to be both women and minorities and they were complaining about stuff and i looked at one and i said what's your academic rank well charlie you know it's a professor i said and are you tenured well, of course i am and i turned to the other and you well i'm a fully tenured professor i said and i looked at both of them i said then start acting like it tenure was granted to you to protect you and allow you to speak out. Now, as we know, many of our colleagues who are faculty affairs people are not tenured, and they, uh, many of them, at least from my eye, and maybe I'm being biased, look to be fairly junior, um, and it makes it harder for them to do that. Um, and, and so I think, at least for me, when I walk into a meeting now, I am I I feel I'm the advocate speaking up for the faculty, and if I don't do it, there's not a lot of other people who do. Good for you. Thank you for your yeah. courage. And those of us who are trying to get promoted will are watching what you're doing, and we'll step in. Yeah. Well, I'll write you a letter for your. <laughs> you know, for a small fee, of course. But I mean, you know, I'm happy to do that. Again, that that's something else that for a different conversation. I put my packet in a, a little bit ago, and it that was like a part time job. And another thing, the oh, every I time know. when I was filling out all the forms and doing all the work, uh, and it's hours and hours and hours, and I was raging, raging, thinking, and our faculty members have to redo this whole CV, get the H index, make yep. this complicated spreadsheet, go online and oh, fill yeah. out this form, go online and fill out that form, gather yeah. all the names of references and recommend, recommenders. Yeah. And it literally was, I spent easily over 40 hours putting my materials together. And then, like you said, and like some of your colleagues say, why bother? Those yeah. friends of mine who are in basic science, they say, 
and I say, well, geez, if not for the credibility, you, know, you get a maybe a 20% raise, and then they laugh and they say, oh, no, that's the last thing I want. If I get a, a, a raise, I got to bring the money in myself. I don't, that's I have right. to support my own salary. It's nobody's giving me that extra money. Yeah. That just means more work for me to get more, to raise more money. So it's well, this yeah. interesting weirdness about why bother? Well, you know, part of, part of the, Preparing the dossier is a necessary evil. So that, and a lot of those activities, as I learned, um, you know, actually bear fruit in other venues. For instance, uh, you, you're going to have to get a bunch of people to write you letters for the rest of your career. You know, here I am in the in the really in the waning years of my career, and I still have to get people to write letters for this, that, and the other thing. So that part of it's probably not a waste of time. Um, the way I did it, and I changed it all, I haven't done it yet for the f- tenured people. That's going to be a harder lift. But everybody else, I've really streamlined the process from the point of view of the faculty member. But, you know, there's still the, the forms. that have, well, There's not actually that many forms anymore. Um, it, it, there's a lot of stuff you're supposed to have anyway, you know, like your student evaluations and such. Um, the poor chairs have to write all these interminable letters, but, you know, as I learned long a long time ago and, and when I was in my other institution, the chair just looked at me and said, you have to write the letter and here's how I want it done. Oh, of so course, I wrote we the write letter. all our own letters. Yeah, we all write our own letters, and then you got to kind of make them look different. And <laughs> it's, oh, my goodness. You know, it's hard. I mean, you got to sit there and, and say what a wonderful person I am. I've, I've gotten over my humble. You know, my issues with being humble years ago, but uh, self-promotion as us you know, is the way I look but at it. But it, it just—it's it, one of those things that kind of annoys me, and it—it it just really makes me mad that I think, well, geez, doesn't my CV speak for itself? And I resent well, having yeah. to document all these things, and it just again makes me so mad yeah. when I think of our faculty members who have a million other things to be doing, and they have to actually go through all these things it's kind of almost the same thing that annoys me to no end these days when you have to when you want to yeah. upload your manuscript to a journal that i feel like we're oh, doing yeah, all yeah, the no. editing we're yeah. doing all the type setting and i yeah. feel like well, gone are the days when you could just email somebody your manuscript now you're spending again another part-time yep. job <laughs> preparing oh, your God. manuscript yeah. and going back and forth and i think oh my gosh again poor faculty members thinking, why am I doing this? Why am well, I trying be- to produce scholarship? It's, it's a part-time job. In- because the entire thing has decided that we're getting paid a lot of money and we're smart and we can figure it out. So they're pushing, and then they're downsizing the overhead. And so what they're doing is pushing all the clerical work down to us, whether yeah. it's in the clinic or whatever. Um Part of the, I will argue against you on one point, and that is your CV is the only record you have of what you've done. And so if I want to know what I was doing 25 years ago, I have no idea, but I got my CV, and it's, it's I got lucky, um, partly because the institution I was at, but um, somebody sat me down early on and said, you know, yelled at me about my CV and, and, and its importance. And uh, so I, I must update my CV six times a year for various things. And, but, you know, I was looking at it again last night, and, oh, geez, I'm on this advisory board, and I forgot to put it in there. Yeah. 
Well, I'm not arguing with you about CVs. I, I definitely agree oh, okay. with you. But what I am, what I'm angry about is uh-huh. the, for example, the Hopkins format where I had to go through and get rid of anything that was italicized and parentheses oh, yeah. and periods and oh, yeah, dates yeah. had to be without the preceding zeros and the city Oof. had to go after the state and. Literally, that level of fine-tooth combing, you know, a 40-page CV, to me, was maddening. And then all the more I thought about this as our faculty having to do this, I was just livid. I thought, this is something, back in the day, the secretary would do this for you. But nobody has these anymore. We're doing all of our own administrative secretarial work. And some of our departments, our clinical departments, uh, there's some of them are still doing that where the secretary does it. But, you know, there, my argument to you is your secretary getting promoted or are you getting promoted? Yeah. And, and uh, so you can have the secretary, you know, uh, uh, do some of it, but you're the one that's going to have to sit down and really work with it because there's no way they're going to understand uh, the kinds of things you're doing or what you're doing. But it is really important to have a record of what you did. Yeah, but what I what I rail against is, um, you know, was we had these these things called green sheets, and they were absolutely insane because there were people that had their green sheets put together, and they're beautiful, and then they had this this CV that is horrible that that was not helping them. So I said, let's get rid of the green sheets and make sure our CV have the same information in it. And now the faculty member at least is spending all their time making sure their CV is pristine. Sure, because then that is transferable. You can send a CV anywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're going to use that for the rest, for everything. I mean, I must send out my CV every other week for something yeah. or another. It's what I, what I have, what, what bothers me is, I mean, I happen to know a little bit about your system and, I had to review a, one of your faculty some a couple of years ago, and I, I was kind of impressed with uh, some of the busy work that was going on. What I was really impressed about was the numbers of external people that your oh gosh yeah. uh, your school was contacting to write letters, and I don't I, I was I, I was um, talking to a colleague uh, from Harvard, and they're starting to. They're starting to see uh, problems with getting people to, people write, to letters. write letters. Yeah, and it, and I was sort of laughing at some of their data because their problem isn't anywhere near as big as ours. Because you know, you get asked to write a letter for Harvard or Hopkins, you go, "Oh, boy, that's a big honor. I'm going to write that letter." But I send you a letter and say, "Hey, I want you to write a letter for a faculty member here in Vermont." Oh, well, and where's Vermont again? Do you guys have an airport? You know, they, I get those kinds of questions. Oh, you'd be surprised, the questions oh, I get. And, um, and, and so I tell, we have to have three letters for a non-tenure track and five for tenure. They have to, you know, be really, truly arm's length. And they say, well, I, I'll, I'll be giving a, I'll be talking to a faculty member one-on-one. Well, how many people are you thinking of putting down for this? Oh, I'm going to put down three. And I said, uh-huh. And what happens if they get a request and they decide not to do the letter? What are you going to do? Oh, well, maybe I should have more. And I said, well, how many more do you think might be good? I mean, they're busy people. They, you know, they, they, and because they're arm's length, they don't actually know you that well, yeah. if at all. 
oh, well, maybe I should have more. Well, how many do you think? And I said, 10 yeah. to get three. Yeah, we had to submit then, 15. Yeah. Yeah. And how yeah. many? So if you, you no, you submit 30, I think. They, they contact 30 people is what I was told. Right. But it doesn't have, matter. Oh, yeah. We have to submit online 15 for a professor. Right. And then they go out and ask more. Right. But but the, the thing is, how many do they ex- actually, actually ask for? And then what percent do they get back? Yeah. See, that would be an interesting thing for you to look into and tell us all about. But I'd like to know more about ours, because this happens at the level of the departments. How many of the requests go out and how many do they end up scrambling? I know they do, because suddenly this person's dossier doesn't come in on time, and I'm assuming it's because they didn't get the letters. We're actually at our associate level. We have an online system, and I think uh, we recently went to providing or giving reviewers the option to do something online. So yep. almost going to sign to like review journal articles where you click yep. like a trip advisor, how many stars or something. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna end up going to that. <laughs> well, I like the you know I like this faculty member and the, I got free breakfast, so it was yeah. good. Oh my gosh! Well, I mean, you know, I, I see it happening. I mean, it's just like going on Amazon. You know, how many reviews did they get and how many stars are they getting? Yeah. Who knows? Um, I don't know. I, I think we're going to have to streamline that because I've written, on, as you might guess, being senior, I've written a lot of <laughs> letters over the years. And I have a format that I use, but I still, you know, you still write in two pages or so, and that's a lot of work. Yeah. And, and you know, if we're truly arm's length, it's maybe at most I've met them a few times. Um, when I get them cold where I've never met them at all, then I kind of look at it and, and see, you know, is this something I even want to spend time doing? Yeah. So, I don't know. It's, it, it's, a hard, it's a hard one. Yeah, it is. Well, Charlie, this has been great. Uh, we've been talking with Charlie Irvin from Vermont, the uh, Associate Dean for Faculty. And I want to thank you, Charlie, for this time. And... Um, Hopefully we'll talk again soon, but if you want to learn more, go to facultyfactory.org. And until next time, thanks, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.